Open up in your Bibles to 1 Timothy. We're, we're working through this letter that Paul wrote to Timothy, uh, Life in the Household of God. We got that title uh, because Paul tells Timothy that the whole point of the letter is to prepare him uh, to know how he ought to behave and how the church ought to behave in the household of God. And so how the church is relating to one another. As I think through this, uh, this, this topic um, that Timothy is being told again and again by the Apostle Paul, one of the uh, sad realities that I reflect on is the reality that um, there are often, and maybe you know people this way, uh, there are stories of people who end up leaving the church and then eventually perhaps even walking away from Christ himself because of some bad experience they had in the church. Uh, you've maybe met someone who fits that description, or maybe you in the past were that person, that if someone were to ask that person, why have you walked away, why have you left the church, or maybe why have you left Jesus, they would say, it was this church that I was a part of was, was so hypocritical, often we hear that word. The hypocrites that filled the church were just too much for me to bear, I couldn't stand it. Or maybe it was the division in the church that was so off-putting that you didn't want to be a part of it. Um, we've probably heard those stories. You maybe know and love someone who has done that. Maybe again, like that was part of your own story, your own past, that was something about the church that just turned you off. It just shut you down in terms of your relationship with it and the people there, and you just felt like maybe I need out and so it has been uh, that we're finding in the letter to Timothy that the reality of unhealthy churches that actually do more harm than good is true, it has been real, and it has been real dating all the way back to the writing of this letter in the very first century. Uh, unhealthy churches, where, where, where healthy churches are meant to promote the glory of God and to provide a place for people to learn and grow together, a place where love uh, abounds and relationships are strong, where health permeates the relationships of the people who gather there. Uh, while that is the goal, there are also scattered around the world, they have been here among us from uh, in every century, in every generation, the reality of unhealthy churches. And what's happening in this first letter is that Timothy has to stay with one uh, because Paul is telling him to stay at this church in Ephesus, which as we read the letter of Timothy, we are discovering that the church in Ephesus where he was supposed to stay was not a healthy church. Uh, just to review last week, it was kind of a mess, all kinds of dysfunction. We know that leaders were all off the rails. Uh, you read about what they were doing in verse uh, 3 of chapter 1. They're teaching a different doctrine. And so Paul has to tell Timothy, stay in Ephesus to tell these guys to stop teaching the stuff that's false. They were devoting themselves in verse 4 to myths and to endless genealogies. Uh, these things were, go, these guys were going into the Old Testament. They were acting like they're these confident teachers of the law, and yet they were going and pulling out all sorts of outlandish, 
bizarre interpretations, looking at genealogies and stories of names and making up these fables about what was going on there. They desired to be teachers of the law, verse 7. They stood up confidently before the church and they made these assertions about the truth and all of it was yet because they were filled with themselves. You go to the rest of the letter in 1 Timothy, it says they're puffed up with conceit. Uh, They're producing not love in the hearts of the people uh, that good leaders are supposed to produce in the hearts of the people. Uh, It says in verse 5 that the aim of Timothy's charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and sincere faith. But what's happening with these false teachers in Ephesus, that Timothy has to go and stay incorrect, they're not producing love, they're producing strife. They're producing friction. They're producing dissension. They're producing speculation. They're not producing anything good. I noted last week that some of these guys are still around today and they're on TV and they're in churches and they're in it for themselves. They want their ego stroked. They're here in the church to fulfill their own carnal desire, whatever that may be, for fame, for money, whatever it may be. And they're using the church and they're using the members to get what they want. Uh, They're not there to serve. They're not shepherds caring for the flock. They're wolves among the flock using the church to get what they want to achieve their own selfish desires. And so Timothy is told, you need to stay there. You need to remain there. You need to take some time in Ephesus to set things right. And you've got to stay and teach, charge, correct. And so... What, what, what Paul is getting at is something I, I wanted to make a big deal of last week, and I want to reiterate it this week, that the point of the ministry of the church, that Paul is saying, hey, Timothy, make sure this happens, is the production of love in the members of the church. And the way that Paul is instructing Timothy to do that is by fighting to clarify truth, gospel truth who God is, what Christ has done, who we are as sinners in need of a Savior, how to respond to the truth. In other words, sometimes we we think of love over here and doctrine over here and the two shall never meet. And what Timothy is being told is if you want to produce love, you got to make sure the bad false teaching is set aside and you got to make sure the truth of the gospel is clarified. Doctrine is for love. Doctrine is intensely practical because it enables us to know who we are, who God is, what God is doing in the church. It enables us to love. And so as Paul desires to produce love in the hearts of his people, he's telling Timothy, make sure you clarify the gospel. Make sure the truth is clear. Never pit those two things against each other. Never say that love and doctrine are other sides, uh, on opposite sides, are mutually opposed as not true. If you want to know how to love, it starts by learning what love is. And that starts by looking at the ultimate picture of love, which is Jesus Christ. That's what he's doing, and that's kind of what we talked about last week in verses 3 to 7. And now we get to this section in chapter 1, verse 8 to 11, where you might be a bit confused that all this talk about love and all this talk about the production of love and pure love and love from a good conscience, a sincere faith, and then he begins to talk in verse 8 about the law. He starts to talk about the law. 
What that tells us about this text is that part of what the false teachers were doing was abusing the law. The law of God given to Moses first, kind of summarized in the Ten Commandments, was given to the ancient Israelites as an understanding of who God is and what he required of them. But in verse 7, these people who were teaching falsely, they desired to be teachers of the law, but they didn't understand it. They went back to the Old Testament to teach the law, but they didn't know what they were talking about. And they were misleading the church because of it. And so Paul feels like he needs to clarify some things for Timothy so that Timothy understands the right use of the law. Now, let's put some things together here. Let's connect some puzzle pieces here. Paul wants love to be produced in the church. Getting in the way of love is false doctrine. False teaching or misunderstandings of certain truths that are very important. So, Paul, in an effort to produce love in the hearts of his people, feels the need to clarify something. And specifically, what he needs to clarify is what the law is for. And that's what we're going to see in verses 8 to 11. What the law does. And so, by logic, we come to conclude that if we can understand why Paul is saying what he's saying about the law and what he intends to communicate about the law of God, then it should produce in us love, right? Can't we make that conclusion? That if we understand this certain doctrinal reality about what the law does, then we should be able to have heightened worship of God and deepened love of one another. Okay, so here's what we're going to do. Three important truths about the law that heighten worship and deepen love. If you're taking notes, you could write those down. Three important truths about the law that heighten worship and produce love. Let's read the whole section again just so you get another feel for it. We read it already, but I want to read it again. Verses 8 to 11 so that it's in our minds. Verse 8, now we know that the law is good. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Three important truths we find from this section and that we need to understand the purpose of the law. And if we understand this, it will increase our worship. Let's start with the most obvious point. Number one, we must believe that the law is good. Now we know that the law is good. This is what Paul starts out by saying is he needs to correct the false teachers who are teaching wrongly as he instructs Timothy to be able to correct the false teachers. He starts with this fundamental reality. Start here. The law is good. Again, the law, the Old Testament law revealed primarily in the Ten Commandments and other surrounding laws in the Old Testament is good. Now, maybe you've read the Old Testament. And you've read through Genesis and you've gotten through Exodus and maybe you started getting your way through Leviticus and you began to ask yourself, are you sure that the law is good? <laughs> this is tough. 
Uh, it's hard reading you get down in those, some of those old books. And you might even thought to yourself, okay, um, I, I, I see here that the law is good, but man, I am sure glad that I'm not living under the Old Testament law. All those dietary restrictions, all those sacrificial rituals, all the things that you had to do to remain cleansed, all these things. You go, I'm glad I'm not under that law. Uh, and maybe you would have even be tempted to think that the law is not good. The law is oppressive. The law hurts you. The law is against you. And, and Paul is writing, hang, hang on, what we need to understand about the law is that it's good. And the way he even says it is almost like the, even the false teachers agreed with this. Now we know that the law is good. It's an agreed statement. We must understand this, that the law is good. Now, I think Timothy knew why the law was good, and I think that's why Paul had said it without doing much explanation. But we're going to back out of 1 Timothy just to give an explanation for why the law is good. So you know this. The law is good because it does two things primarily. The law is good because it does two things primarily. Here's thing number one. It reveals God's holy character. The law is good because it is revealing the holiness of God to such a degree that we may not understand the immense holiness of God had we never received the law. The law is good because it's revealing God's character. You can turn in your Bibles to Leviticus. Let's just head over to Leviticus uh, where we're right in the thick of it. We're right in the thick of the law. You can keep your finger in 1 Timothy, and you can go to Leviticus, and in chapter 11, toward the end, it's the third book in the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and you get in verse, 11, or verse 44 of chapter 11, and he's going through these laws, and God has given his laws to the nation of Israel, and in verse 44... Moses, relaying these laws, declares what God has said, and God has said this, verse 44, for I am the Lord. Literally, I am Yahweh. I am, I am. I am the self-existent God of all. I am the Lord your God. And then he says this, consecrate yourselves therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. Pause right there. God is holy. That means He is separate. He is other. He is different. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. He cannot be contained in human structures, in human minds. We can understand degrees of God, but the fullness of God is so other, so separate, so holy, that we can only know that which He reveals Himself in His Word. And right here, He reveals Himself to be holy, perfect, utter perfection, separate from anything that would ever be tainted by sin. In, in chapter 19 of Leviticus, turn a few pages over, he, he connects his commands to his character. His commands are connected to his character. Verse 2, 
Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. And then he starts talking about the laws. Every one of you shall reveal, revere his mother and his father and shall keep my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. Do not turn to idols or make for yourselves any gods of cast metal. I am the Lord, your God. The end of verse 10. I am the Lord, your God. End of verse 12. I am the Lord. End of verse 14. I am the Lord. You go through. If you were to mark every time he gives a law and then he gives you the motivation for obeying that law, the motivation is simply his holy character. He is Yahweh. He is holy. He is separate from sin. He is perfect. He is different. And Israel was to live in obedience to the law because it came from the holy character of God. And so the first reason the law is good is because it reveals something about God. Namely, His holiness, His perfection, His difference from just mere men. Now you get to the New Testament and, and Jesus is, is dealing with these Pharisees. Always talking to these Pharisees. And these Pharisees often lied, like to try to stump Jesus. They played that game pretty frequently. Stump Jesus. And they would come up to him and they'd try to ask him some question. They'd try to tangle him up in his words. And Jesus was just the master of correcting them. And one point in Matthew 22, uh, the Pharisees come up to him and they say, Hey, teacher, which is the greatest commandment of the law? And he said to them, so Jesus responds by giving them the correct answer. What's the greatest commandment? What's the great commandment in the law? He says this, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. And so if you were to read Leviticus, and even if you were to expand your reading beyond Leviticus, if you were to read the Ten Commandments, if you reveal all the revealed law of God given to Israel in the Old Testament, Jesus will summarize that in the New Testament, and he will say this, that the entire point of the law was to point you to this reality, this fundamental greatest commandment is this full-hearted, deep, sincere, genuine love for God. Not, not love that's aped by mere external appearance. Not love that is only conditioned on whether it will give me some sort of payback. This deep, sincere springing from the depths of the soul of that person. A love for God, who He is, for His character, in His holiness. This is the summation of the law. Full-hearted, all-in, totally loving, admiring, delighting, enjoying, entrusting, and serving God. That's the revelation of the law. This is the good thing that the law does. It reveals all that God demands of His people. All His holy character. Because He is perfect and sinless, because He is perfect in holiness, He calls His people to perfect, hear that word, perfect righteousness. To the degree that Jesus will say, you must be perfect. Matthew 5.48, you must be perfect as my heavenly Father is perfect. 
And so the first point of what the law is doing is it's revealing the holy character of God. Secondly, though, and you can't have the second without the first or the first without the second. They come in tandem. The second reason the law is good, the second thing that the law does is it exposes the sinful nature of man. Because the moment you get a glimpse of the holiness of God, You can't help but respond by seeing yourself as inadequate, as having failed, as not being able to live up to the standard. Uh, Romans 7, 12, and 13 make this clear. So it says this, Paul writes, so the law is holy. That's another way of saying the law is good, the law is perfect, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. And then he says this, did that which is good namely the law, did that which is good bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good. Listen to this. In order that sin might be shown to be sin. That's what the law is doing. In order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. He's saying that part of the law's goodness, part of the good stuff the law does in the lives of the people who encounter it is that it exposes their sin. It exposes their fallenness. It exposes their failure. Really what the law is doing is this. It's saying, God's standard, you. God's standard, you. God's standard, you. Again and again. Here's what God requires of his people. Here's you. Do you see it? You read the law enough and again and again and again. God is holy. God is holy. He demands perfection. He demands obedience. God is perfect. And do you see who you are? Do you see what you've done? It's a mirror. He's holding up to you. Truth. But he's trying to help people see who they are. See who you are. The law is not only to reveal the holiness of God, the holy character of God, it does that. But then, in seeing who God is, the law condemns us because it exposes our sin. It exposes not only our failure, but our inability to fix anything. You say, why is that good? That doesn't sound good. Well, you stay living under the law and it will drive you crazy. But that's what the law does. The law brings you to the end of yourself. The law is utterly shattering sinners. That's what it's meant to do. It's meant to expose them. It's meant to compare them with God's requirement. It's meant to bring them to the end of themselves. It's meant to call out the sin in the lives of the people who encounter it. It's meant to point out the inability of people to fix themselves. It's meant to expose God's holiness and just shatter our pride. It's meant to bring us to our knees. It's meant to show the holy character of God in our failure to worship it as he calls us to. Now here, we come to the second point. First, you've got to remember that the law is good because it's revealing God and it's exposing the sin of man. But secondly, we've got to understand this about the law. We've got to be aware of the law's limits. Look at what he says in, back in 1 Timothy. He says, now we know that the law is good, but there's a condition. If one uses it lawfully. That is to imply that if the law is used in an unlawful way, that it's not functioning in the good way it's supposed to function. And here's what happens. 
And this will help understand how we often use the law unlawfully. This is what happens. Often what happens in our lives is we encounter the holiness of God at some point. At some point, it's the, it's the external word of God that is exposing our sin. It's, it's showing off who God is. And it's working in conjunction with the conscience that God has given each and every one of us. And we feel our utter failure to live up to the standard of God. And often what happens in that moment of failure or of perceiving finally our own inability to fix things, we get into a frenzy trying to make everything right. And trying to fix ourselves. Uh, We try to, by the works of our hands, to obey the law enough. uh, Thinking we can change ourselves by the law. And I'm going to be more committed to church now. And I'm going to be more committed to my Bible reading. And I'm going to pray more often. And all the religious activity just heightens. I'm going back to church. I'm going to do these things. I'm going to work to make sure that the condemnation of the law doesn't fall on me. I'm going to fix myself. But here we need to beware of the law's limits. Listen, the law, it reveals God. It does so tremendously. That's what it's intended to do. The law exposes sin. That's what it's supposed to do. It does so tremendously. It helps you see your sin in an amazing way. It shatters our pride. But listen, the law cannot change you. And the law cannot save you. The law cannot change your heart. The law cannot save your soul. The law cannot do any of these things. There are limits to the law. To use the law unlawfully would be to present it in such a way where we say, hey, just do these things and God will be happy with you. Just do these things and you'll earn the favor of God. Just do these things and you'll you'll fix all your problems. You can do it by the works of your hands. That would be an unlawful use of the law. That's what the false teachers were doing here. In other places, they were saying that if you don't get married and if you abstain from certain foods, then you're really holy. And and, and the law was being used in an unlawful way. And Paul is saying, you got to understand that the law is not meant to provide sanctification. The law is not able to provide salvation. The law condemns. That's what it does. And it does so, so well. When I was in fifth grade, I was playing flag football. And there was this long pass in the air, and I was trying to catch it, and I was running full speed. And uh, there was another guy. It was a dress-up day at the school, and everyone's dressed up in different things for whatever reason. This kid on the football field was wearing cowboy boots. He had steel-toed boots on, and I was running to catch this ball, and I dove for it. He thought it was uncatchable, went to kick it. His boot met my head. And my head, this explains a lot. My head took a beating. I was carried, I was bleeding everywhere, carried to the office. My parents met me there, and my dad and mom happened to both show up. My dad says, take him home, he'll be all right. My mom says, he needs to go to the emergency room. We went to the emergency room. We go to the emergency room. The doctor says, you're getting into, you, you got to get a CAT scan. I'm thinking, what does this all have to do with cats? I didn't know. And so we get into this CAT scan. I, there's loud machines going on. And what they discover is that my skull looks like a cracked egg. I'm sitting there on the sheet and they tell me, um, you have many fractures in your skull. Now that CAT scan did a good thing. It exposed a problem. It showed the need. 
It gave the doctors what they needed to know what to do next for, to help me. But you know what that CAT scan didn't do? <laughs> it didn't do anything to fix my problem. It didn't do anything to f- actually turn the, the, what the, the knowledge that they knew. It didn't actually fix me. I, I sat in the scan. I got analyzed by the scan, but I wasn't fixed by the scan. That is what the law does. It will expose, it will convict, it will reveal, but it will not fix you. It will do its role. It will accomplish its end. It will show who God is. It will expose your sin, but it will not fix those problems. There's another way that God intends for those problems to be fixed, but it's not the law. The law condemns. So what we do often, this is what we often do as Christians, we are exposed by the law. We feel we've fallen short of God's requirements in the law. And often we try to fix ourselves. We do everything we can we, to make ourselves better and to fix our problems, to sanctify ourselves by the works of our own hands. And listen, what that ends up is a nagging conscience that will never leave you alone, a sense of guilt that will never leave you, It'll drive you nuts. You'll never be able to sleep at night without the nagging sense that you have, you've done enough. You'll wake up in the morning feeling like you need to do more. And if you don't do enough, God will not love you. Your love or God's love for you is dependent entirely on your performance. It's, you think that God's love for you is dependent entirely on your ability to have a good day that day. And if you have a bad day, you feel that God doesn't love you anymore. If you have a good day, you feel like he loves me more. And we live in this insane up and down thing. We're always trying to, by the works of our hands, fulfill the requirements of the law. And you never will. You never will because you can't. The law is too high. The standard is too lofty. Uh, recently, I was reading a poem by Victor Hugo about Cain. He, he wrote this poem about, the, uh, about Cain. Remember Cain and Abel. And he tells in a very poetic way how Cain killed his brother Abel. But after he does, he discovers this eye that's just is watching him, his every move. This kind of floating, disembodied eye, just watching his every move. And his children notice that there's something wrong, and, and they, they, they notice that he's living in this sense of constant, frenetic uh, condemnation because he had just killed his brother, and now there's this eye always watching him. And, and one child says, uh, Father, why don't you build a tent? And so he builds this tent, and he hides himself in the tent, and sure enough, right there with him, there's the eye watching him. And another child comes up to his father, why don't you build a tower? Why don't you climb to the top of the tower and surely you climb to the top of the tower, there will be no eye watching you. And so they build this tower together and he climbs to the top of the tower and sure enough, the eye is watching him. He can't escape the sense of guilt. He can't escape the sense of shame. Finally, he suggests to his children, I need not a tent, I need not a tower, I need a tomb. In the final stanza of the poem, He says, please, Cain said, put me underground. Those men of solitude below don't bear the sound nor sight of anything around them anymore. But you'd be dead, said Scylla. And Cain said, forevermore. From a city of cloud to a city of bone, Cain walked down the tower steps alone. And once in the dark of that eternal tomb, 
the eye stared back from the end of the room. He, he couldn't escape it. It was his conscience working in coordination with the law, wherever he went, the works of his hands, the work building the tent, the work building the tower. Even to crawl into the tomb, he couldn't escape the conviction of the law. He couldn't, by the works of his hands, escape the sense of guilt and shame. He understood there's got to do something. This is often what we're doing even in the church, thinking that by the works of our hands we can clean our own consciences, that we can do enough works to make ourselves feel good about ourselves, but the law is too high. So that James says in chapter 2 verse 10, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable to all of it. All of it. So if we try to even get, live our lives according to the law, we violate one and we're guilty of the whole thing. So the Galatians 3.10, Paul says, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. The Bible is saying this, the law is good because it reveals the holiness of God. It reveals the sinfulness of man. And we, in often our efforts to fix our problems, to ease our conscience, to, to fix our brokenness, we try and we try and we try and we try by our own self-righteous works. And here the Bible is saying, no, you break one, you break them all. No, you're under a curse. Romans 8, 8. No, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. In Romans chapter 3, verses 19 and 20, it's kind of a culmination of all that Paul wants to say about our inability and the law's inability to save. In verse 19, listen to this. He says this. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped. And the whole world may be accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Paul makes it really clear. The law reveals God. The law exposes our sin. And there is nothing we can do about it. We are condemned under the law. The gavel has sounded. The judge has pronounced the guilty verdict. We stand on the scaffold condemned. The noose around our neck tightens. Our hands are tied. There is nothing we can do. I remember meeting with a student who kind of played the Christianity game and he was calling himself a Christian, but lived like the world, made excuses for his sin, had no desire to honor the Lord. And one day he got caught in this particularly uh, gross sin and it got exposed. And, and we sat down and the more I talked to him, the more he just minimized it. He was making excuses. He was pointing fingers. He was blaming others. and just very much didn't understand the gravity of his own life and the direction it was going. And I said to him, in a loving way, sitting outside five guys over a burger and fries. I said, listen, man, you're headed to destruction. <laughs> you can't do anything about it. 
You have no capacity to change. You're hopeless. You're lost. You're confused. You don't need to tweak something. You don't need to turn over a new leaf. You need something that you cannot produce. You are utterly broken, beyond repair, and there's nothing you can do about it except there's grace. And we got to the gospel. But I needed to sit there and look him in the eye and tell him his utter hopelessness apart from Christ. I needed to do what the law does. I needed to help him see his God and see his sin and recognize his total failure and his complete inability. Now this might be a pretty heavy sermon and I just want to pause right here before we move on and ask you something. Are you willing to agree with the law's assessment of you? Honestly. Are you willing to agree with the law's assessment of you? Are you holding on to some delusional idea of who you are? Do you keep saying to yourself, no, I'm okay, everything's okay, my life's fine, my life's not a mess, everything's fine, my relation with God is fine, we're good, I've done enough, I've done a lot, look at me, I'm okay, everything's okay. There are people whose sin is hurting them. It's hurting their spouse. It's hurting their kids. It's destroying their relationships. It's making them miserable. And they will not look it in the face and deal with it. They will deny it. They won't deal with it. And though it's hurting themselves and everyone around them, they are unwilling to agree with the law's assessment of themselves. They are not willing to say that they are a fallen person. They are not willing to say that they are needy and broken. They are not willing to say that they have a need outside of themselves that they cannot fix from within. I think we all need to hear this, and this might hurt initially, but we all need to hear this, right? We all need to hear this. Hear what I'm about to say. Everyone in this room, including this guy, is a failure. That's what the law says. We were created for His glory and we have failed. Maybe your inner defense lawyer is perking up right now. Look at all the things I've done. Look at the works of my hands. We often do this. We get our robes of righteousness on. We, we start defending ourselves or we start point, pointing fingers and we become these people who are trying to fight for some inherent goodness within ourselves. And we'll drive ourselves crazy doing that. Friends, listen, there's a better way, and it's called grace. Grace, not living under the condemnation of the law, living under grace. Now, look with me in 1 Timothy. Here's what the law is doing. We're going to have our third point here. I'm going to tell you the, the third point here is the law is a bridge to the gospel. The law is a bridge to the gospel. You see, here at rock bottom, stripped bare, utterly undone by the law, finally admitting the law's evaluation of ourselves, finally admitting that we are beggars in the gutter, cannot help ourselves completely, dependent on the generosity of someone outside of us, it is there that we understand grace. And to the degree that we fight the law and we promote our own righteousness, we will never understand grace. Grace only 
makes sense to sinners who deeply know they need it. Grace only is valuable to those who say, I am a failure. And apart from the help of God, I will continue to be a failure. The law does this. We're going to sing at the end of this sermon the, the, the old hymn, Rock of Ages. And there's one line or one stanza in the hymn that says this, Not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal... No respite, no. Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save. And thou alone. See this? You can't labor long enough with your hands. You can't fulfill the demands of the law. If you had all the zeal of all the energy of all the people in the world trying to do all the good works you could, you could never atone for your own sin. If you wept, if you cried out to, to God as many times as you could, if there's still a sense that you can do it on your own, it doesn't matter how many tears you shed. None of that atones for sin. Thou must save, Christ must save, and Christ alone. So the law brings us to the gutter where we learn that there is grace for sinners. Listen to this, listen to this. The law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this. Here's how you understand the right way, or here's how you rightly understand the law. That the law is not laid down for the just. That is to say, when the law was given to humanity, it wasn't given to good people. It wasn't given to people who need no law. It was given to the lawless. Look at these, look at these descriptions of these people. The lawless and disobedient. These are people who act without any regard to law, living as they please, living like atheists in God's world. The ungodly and sinners, another pair. These are rebels against God. These are those who high-handedly violate His revealed commands. The unholy and profane. Unholy is the idea of impurity. It's the idea of unfaithfulness. It's the idea of adulterous relationship where God is meant to be your single faithful devotion, but you've strayed to other lovers. Profane. It's the idea of taking that which is infinitely precious and treating it like dirt. He talks about those who strike their fathers and mothers and murderers. Uh, This is is talking about the, the lowest of the low. God designing the family to be a place of natural love and affection. And he's talking the law has come for those who hate their parents, who murder them, who strike them. He talks about the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality. These are violations of God's design for men and women. It's an abuse of the created order. He talks about enslavers in some translation, reads man-stealers, kidnappers. This is referring to people who are into trafficking, taking people, kidnapping them, and selling them in some sort of devilish trade. He talks about liars and perjurers, guilty of violating the command of God not to bear false testimony. And then just to round it off in case they didn't cover everyone, he says, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Do you guys see what he's doing here? The law comes not for the good people, but for these people. And then he says, look at this, see it in the text, verse 11, The law is given, if we're to to summarize what he's saying, the law is given for the lawless in accordance with the gospel. 
You see what's happening there? Those two are married together. The law and gospel are married together and they should never be separated. The law is the bulldozer that plows your life down and that destroys your self-righteousness. It peels away the pretensions you have that you're a good person. The law is scraping away all your self-reliance. It's teaching you you are unable to fix yourself. That's what the law does. It is a bulldozer that will wreck your self-reliance. But it's, the bulldozer comes to clear the path. Why? So that you will actually understand grace, the gospel. It's given in accordance with the gospel. It shatters us so we're so low that looking up we see Christ, the good news, that a sinner like me could be saved. I can give up building a tent or building a tower, building a tomb, trying to escape the, the, the guilty conscience, trying to escape the condemnation of the law, I can have another way that I relate to God. Not by trying to earn His favor, but by God freely giving His favor upon those who believe that's what the gospel is. There's this great story um, in the Chronicles of Narnia in the book, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader about the, uh, the, the snobby kid, Eustace. If you've read those books, you've, you've encountered Eustace. And in the first parts of the book, he's such a snob. He's, he's not a very likable character. He's greedy. He's selfish. He's all about himself. And at one point, uh, his greed and his selfishness cause him to turn into a dragon that's acting greedy. And, and, and he comes to realize that as a dragon, it's not all that he wanted it to be. He begins to be humbled. He wants to change. He wants to go back to being a real, normal human being again. And so there's this scene, there's this great scene where he's trying to peel away his own skin. He's trying to fix himself. He's, he's miserable. He's so low. He's at the point where he's actually tearing away at his own flesh and he can't do anything. And in that scene, Aslan appears. And if you've read the stories, you know Aslan represents Jesus. Well, Aslan appears and Aslan says to him, you will have to let me do it. And in that moment, Aslan reaches in and described as almost like he's reaching into his very heart and he begins to peel away the flesh of that dragon, peel after peel, flesh after flesh, and the description is that it is excruciating, it is painful, it's almost like he's tearing out his heart bit by bit, but after it's done, Eustace is there, a new creature. And what a picture so often we're there like this dragon. We're trying to fix ourselves and we can't do anything. And Jesus says, I can do it for you. And yet, the way that Jesus changes our hearts, the way that Jesus saves sinners is by peeling away all that which offends Him. All that sin which offends His holiness. And He makes us new and He changes our hearts. And if we try to fix ourselves, we get nowhere. We allow, must face it and allow Jesus to do it for us. One preacher it was reflecting on this story in this Narnia series. He said this, The way to deal with guilt is not to avoid it, but to resolve it. Eustace not only realized that he couldn't get his own skin off, but that God, only God, can come and take your skin off. And to do this, 
You have to let him pierce deep. You must take all the guilt on yourself and stop blame shifting and take responsibility for what you've done wrong. No excuses. Look it full in the face. And as you own your own sin, as you own your own guilt, Jesus comes. He strips it away. He changes your heart. He gives you new life. But we have to own it first. That's what the law does. We have to look it full in the face and say, I am a sinner. We have to agree with the condemnation of the law and we have to say, I deserve this penalty. I deserve condemnation. And in that moment, we look to Jesus Christ because we have no other options. We cry out to Jesus Christ because there are no other options and Jesus makes us new from the heart out. And so you might be wondering, why does Paul list all these gross sins? Uh, Look at all these sinners here. You know what? It's because this is the kind of people that God has come to save in Jesus Christ. These are the people. Not those who think they don't fit in this list. In fact, I think we read this list and the right reading of this list is to say, I'm on that list. I'm part of the ungodly. I'm part of the perverse. I'm part of the liars. I am there in that list. But God has revealed to me the sinfulness of my own heart. But He has done so through the law, but in accordance with the gospel. To break me down so He can show me grace. So He can teach me not to depend on the works of my own hands. That He can show me grace. Paul was amazing. Look at this. Look at verse 15. This, this is amazing. Paul, you might argue, is the most driven man that the church has ever seen. And he's driven by love. He's driven by love of God and love of neighbor and love for the church. He's driven. Love is just filling his heart. And look at what he says in verse 15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Do you see this? He just finished writing a list of perverse sins, of things that we might see as gross. We read this list and we might be off-put by that list of sinners. And Paul, immediately after writing the list, says, You see all those people I just talked about? You see all those sinners that I just mentioned? I am their chief. I am the worst. All of them put me at the front. I'm the chief of sinners. Get every other sinner in the world. Get every other sinner in the history of mankind and let me stand at the front as their chief because I am worse than them all. And because he had such a low view of himself, He had a soaring view of the grace of God, didn't he? An unstoppable love that would serve anyone, that would stoop as low as he needed to stoop to reach to the most perverse of sinners. Paul, the greatest sinner, died all those years ago. And isn't this an amazing truth that Christ died for sinners? Isn't this amazing? If you've ever thought that he couldn't save you, 
He can. He will. All those who come to Him, He'll never cast out. Once the law bulldozes your self-righteousness and you become stripped bare uh, thinking that you could ever do anything to earn your standing with God and that you can never do anything to change yourself by your own power, once you get down that low, Jesus is there with His hand extended. Jesus is there ready to save the worst of the worst. You say, well, I've broke the law. I've earned the curse. Yes, you have. But the Bible says that Christ redeemed us from the curse. How? By becoming a curse for us. That's the cross. Bearing your curse. Bearing your sin. Bearing your shame. You say, well, I never could meet the righteous requirements of the law. I could never do that. Well, the Bible says that Jesus already did that in living His perfect life. And by faith, you get His righteousness given to you as a gift when you believe. Not when you earn it. You say, well, sometimes I still feel like I live in this condemnation. But Romans 8.1 says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? The law has been fulfilled in Him. All that Christ is, He is for you in your salvation. You are totally forgiven. You are totally graced. You are totally clothed in the righteousness of Christ. You don't need to walk under the condemnation of the law. You say, what do I do? What do I do? For God so loved the world. Let's hear this afresh, church. You know this verse, but let's hear it freshly again like for the first time. For God so loved the world that He sent His only Son so that whoever believes, not earns, not works hard enough, not cleans up their life enough, whoever believes in Him may not perish but have everlasting life. Working for your salvation is over. Now you live in the grace of God. And when you encounter the grace of God in this way, I tell you, you can't help but love. When you're on the scaffold, that noose is around your neck, your hands are tied and you're helpless, you have no hope within yourself, you can't escape its condemnation, and a king comes to you and says, I will take your place, give me your rope, Give me your penalty. Give me your shame. Let me bear your penalty for you. And because I love you, take my life, take my inheritance, take my riches, take my throne, take my kingdom, take my joy forever. I tell you, you walk off that scaffold a changed person. And you are changed because now you have a new love in your heart that is a fire you can't put out. That you love Christ, your Savior. And like Paul, you say, I'm the worst. I'm the lowest. I'm the chief. But I've received mercy. And now out of my mercy, I live my life of love toward others for His glory and not my own. The law is good. Because it brings you to a point so low that it begins to help you make sense of Grace. 
And to the degree that you go low and you allow the law to break you utterly down to your lowest point is the degree that you will value grace, love Jesus, desire to serve Him. And if we ignore the law, we ignore the revealed holiness of God, we ignore the way it exposes our sin and renders us unable. If we do that, we will never love grace very much. We will never love God very much and we will never love each other very much. Because he who is forgiven much loves much. Friends, do you know how much you have been forgiven? I want you to take a few minutes in your own uh, time before the Lord right now in silence to just pray to Christ, thanking Him for His work in the fulfillment of the law for you. And if you have never come to Christ, to come to Him now in humility, seeking His grace. And in a couple minutes, we will finish with a song.